I'm Andy. Um, and actually, my normal spot on Sundays is up here playing guitar. Thank you, Gabrielle, for coming in to fill in this morning. Really grateful to have you lead us in worship. Um, but yeah, I actually just a week and a half ago celebrated two years of being on staff um, here at the Bridge Montrose. Um, I was in, oh, thank you. <laughs> um, I was, my title was pastoral intern, and so I was doing, I'm going to still be doing a lot of things that I was doing, which uh, mainly Sunday worship stuff, so band and all the technology and everything like that, um, and also uh, helping kind of lead our guide, our transformation groups, which is, you know, kind of our small group ministry, the way we do community together. Um, and so I'll continue doing that, and my new title is Director of Gathered Life. So <laughs> thank you. Um, yeah, so I'll continue doing that. And then on top of that, I actually will be getting to kind of be up here a little more consistently about roughly once every four to six weeks. So um, yeah, really grateful for that opportunity, just really um, humble. Um, and yeah, just super grateful to be with you this morning. Um, so uh, we're kind of in the, we've kind of been in the middle of a series, um, I think it's been four weeks, four weeks where we've been kind of doing surveys of a lot of the Old Testament prophets, the minor prophets, um, and so we're just going to actually be taking a, a, a quick break just for this week uh, before we continue on and for the rest of the fall. Um, so today, we're going to be reading a story from the Gospel of John, and in this story today, we're going to be seeing Jesus perform an act of extraordinary humility. Um, and, you know, I, I, would, I would argue that humility is a pretty universally accepted virtue. It doesn't matter really what religion or lack of religion that you ascribe to. Um, and I, I would think that anybody who reads this so story, um, again, regardless of whether or not you identify as Christian or something else, um, you could easily argue that this story is really about just humble um, living and selfless service. Um, but as important as humility is in this story, I think it actually points us to something bigger that's a little deeper down in it. Um, and so this story, as I said, is coming from the Gospel of John. And um, when, when trying to understand things that we find in the Bible, and honestly, anywhere, anything that's written, it's always important to understand things kind of in their greater context. And so... Um, and it's helpful to know what the purpose, the intent of the author, the writer was. And so, um, actually, thankfully, uh, for the Gospel of John, there's, he very clearly states it at near the very end of his Gospel. It's in, uh, found in chapter 20, verse 30 to 31. I'll just read that real quick. Um, you don't have to turn there. I think it should be on the screen as well. Um, but this is, this is Jesus speaking to his, dis or I guess, sorry, John, describing the purpose of this book. Um, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so just knowing that is really helpful. And one thing that it's very easy to miss, I mean, I guess you will miss it if you don't go back to the original Greek, where it says that you may believe, he's, John is actually saying y'all. It's, it's, it, the Greek form there is the plural for you. And so this is where it would be helpful to have like the Texas translation of uh, the Bible, where you, you get kind of the plural use, because it makes a difference, honestly. Um, but yeah, so he's saying um, his hope is that, that anyone who reads this, this story, this whole story front to back, uh, might believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Um, and so you know, Messiah and Savior are titles that carry a lot of weight, I would say. Um, and 
I think nowadays they're used more often in this kind of like critical or sarcastic tone when describing somebody. I mean, the thing I first thought of was the, the, the label Messiah complex. That's not a compliment. You know, that's usually this criticism of someone who has a little too big of an ego. Um, so all that to say, you know, for some to believe that someone, anybody, is a messiah of something, let alone messiah of humanity's collective problem that has existed from the beginning of time. Um, that's, that's no small thing to do to believe that. Um, but even more so, it's, it's, it's no small thing to claim that, to be that. Um, and it's, you know, it's, I think that it's so crazy in this passage, we're going to see that Jesus, as he's modeling humility, he's simultaneously making this claim, which, is a, which can be perceived in some ways, if you look at it from one way, as a very arrogant thing, but I don't think it comes from a place of arrogance. And so, um, you know, uh, I think uh, my hope is that, you know, as we dig into this story today, um, that God would just be uh, showing us what exactly he wants us to know and understand about humility, about Jesus, et cetera, et cetera. So um, I'm going to pray for us, and we will get right into it. Um, Father God, uh, thank you so much for uh, this day. Thank you for... Um, just this time to come together, um, both as your people and as seekers, God. Um, I pray that you would be speaking your truth and your love through me, God, that, um, that I would simply be a, a vessel and a conduit and nothing more, God. Um, I thank you for each person here and just their willingness to be here. I thank you that you've brought them here, and um, I pray that you would uh, encourage them, that you would challenge them, um, and that you would uh, lift them up and, and, and point their eyes towards you, God. Uh, so I just thank you for this time and pray these things in the name of your son. Uh, I'm going to start reading from the beginning of John chapter 13. This is the story that we're going to be based out of today. Um, and so if you, if you want to look it up for yourself, um, th- it will be on the screen ver- a verse at a time, but there's also Bibles under the, ta- uh, the chairs in case you want to read that. Um, just have that kind of all in front of you. Um, But yeah, so I'm going to start right at the beginning of John chapter 13. So, um, now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And then we're actually going to jump a little bit ahead to verse 12 for, uh, just for the beginning. So when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a master is not great, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So we're going to stop there for now. I'm going to kind of camp out here for a second. Um, so, uh, just to give a little more context to this story, um, and also, yeah, to this story, this is the very beginning of the second major section in the Gospel of John. Gospel of John really has three major chunks. Uh, the first 12 chapters, it's the life, the ministry, and the miracles of Jesus. And then we get 
verses 13 through 17, we're at the very beginning of 13. 13 through 17 is this, what's more colloquially known as the Last Supper, um, but also called the Upper Room Discourse. There's a lot of teaching and kind of uh, sharing that Jesus gives um, in this moment. Um, and then the third is um, from, I guess, 18 to 20, 21. It's the, the suffering, the betrayal, the suffering, and the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so um, we're at the very beginning of this middle section. Um, and, you know, I found it interesting. I, d- I don't know exactly all the implications of this, but this is five chapters of 21. So basically a quarter is devoted to a few hours that Jesus spends at the very end of his life with his closest followers, his friends, his brothers in arms. Um, and so they're, they're sharing dinner together, um, kind of in the setting of this, r- the, one of the arguably most important holidays in the Jewish tradition, Passover. Um, so um, the Upper Room Discourse, and this, um, this is not super important to understand the rest of this, but just maybe like if you're familiar with the other parts of, of this, um, this whole time that Jesus spends with his disciples, it's, it's a, a farewell address um, the form of it takes the form of a farewell address. And so it starts with Jesus announcing his impending departure, um, comforting his worried followers, directing them to keep his teachings, commanding them to love each other, telling them of what lies ahead, praying for peace, naming his successor, who is the Holy Spirit, and, and praying for his followers. Um, and so just, just, to under, just to help understand this story better, this is the very beginning of that. This is Jesus saying, I'm going soon, basically. Um, and so, yeah, so um, now g- getting into another aspect of this story, we see that Jesus, he's washing the disciples' feet. And that might not mean much to us because I don't, I mean, maybe if you get, I've never actually gotten a pedicure, so I don't know if when you get a pedicure, they wash your feet at some point. Um, but okay, for a guy at least <laughs> um, uh, who has not gotten pedicures before, um, foot washing doesn't really connect in and of itself. Like, I don't know the significance of that until you start understanding the culture and the history of that moment. Um, and so, you know, this is happening in Jerusalem, the Middle East. Um, so it's a, it's a hot desert climate. Back then, they mostly wore sandals, roads were unpaved, so feet, I'm sure, were pretty dusty at the very least and very sweaty. They're, they're walking around the desert, they got sandals on, they're sweaty, it's dirty, but on top of that, especially in cities, um, I, I, th- oftentimes sewage would literally run openly in streets. There's, there's actually many places in the world that still, unfortunately, um, have this condition of living, but sewage was just kind of open, dr- like kind of troughs through the street and animals like just pooped as they pleased as they walked through the city. Um, so needless to say, it's probably disgusting just walking, like being in a city, walking around. And so I was thinking about, for me, as someone who collects sneakers, I'm like, this would just be the biggest nightmare. I'd be like tiptoeing everywhere. I'd be like, oh my gosh, got to avoid. So I'm just glad that's no longer the case for us <laughs> here in Houston. Um, but yeah, so needless to say, feet were arguably the nastiest part of the body at, at that time and place. Um, and so given that, it, it made sense in a way that the task of washing feet was reserved for the lowest of the low. No one else wanted to do it. And so they would reserve that task for servants, for slaves. Um, and, you know, it's interesting. In this story, Jesus affirms that he is teacher and Lord. They, he says that they have called him that, and he says, indeed, I am teacher and Lord. Um, and un- unpacking those labels, you know, at the surface, the, it just, he's a teacher and he's a Lord, someone, 
in power. But I think especially at that time and place, unfortunately, relative to like America now, teachers don't really get this place of high honor. They don't get treated well by their schools. Usually they don't get treated well by their students. They don't get treated well by the government. You know, it's like, it's pretty, it's a bad gig. And I'm very grateful to all my t friends who are teachers now, all my teachers in the past. I hope you are too, because um, they deal with a lot um, for very little return. Um, but yeah, so teachers back then, that was a very highly esteemed position in society. I mean, for obvious reasons, you're, you're, you're transferring knowledge and wisdom that, you know, can't really be just like composed out of thin air. You have to get it by experience and, and, and maturity. And so you're responsible for transferring that to the next generation. So that's a very important role in a society, just objectively. And so back then, being a rabbi, a religious teacher, I mean, in a culture that was based around a religion, that's crucial, that's absolutely imperative to the continuance of that culture. Um, and so Jesus says, I'm teacher, I'm, I'm, this, I'm a rabbi, he acknowledges that. And then Lord, of course, is just this term of power. It signifies that you have authority and you have a position in society of power. Um, so he acknowledges his high status, as his disciples have in some way, and yet he unsolicitedly and willingly takes on this task of washing their feet, which is you know, normally something that servants do for people of higher authority. He, as the person of higher authority in this setting, he does this for his followers, his students, the people that are supposed to look up to him, the people that are supposed to care for him and attend to his needs. He does this most, in a way, like humiliating, menial task for them. Um, and so I think this is where it's important to see that the, the centrality of humility in the kingdom of God, in, in the kingdom of God and in the economy of God's kingdom. Um, you know, Peter was, was scandalized when, uh, we're, we're going to cover it a, a later, but Peter, he is scandalized by Jesus just uh, trying to do this for them. He's like, this is not right, you know. And, but Jesus know, knows this. He understands this. Um, but he's not here just to teach humility in a, like a behavioral sense and a relational sense. Um, I, 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 I realize that this is yet another moment in his life where Jesus highlighted the centrality of humility in the economy of God's kingdom. Um, and there's this one other moment, the first moment I thought of, it's actually captured in all three other gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, where the disciples, his disciples, they're, you know, they're kind of wandering around um, wherever they are, and they're, they're bickering over who's going to be the greatest, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. And and Jesus like kind of catches them because they're, they're having this conversation. They think that Jesus isn't hearing them, but of course he knows what's going on and he hears them. He's like, what are y'all talking about? And they're, and they're just kind of like shuffling their feet. They're look, looking at the ground like, oh, I don't want to talk about this. Um, but, you know, he, in that moment, he, he kind of rebukes them. He's like, and he gets a child. He, I guess there's a child close by. And so he has this, he takes this child and he's like, you, the only way you get into the kingdom of heaven is if you are like this child. And of course, a child is this picture of innocence, this picture of humility. Um, and, you know, I think there's so many other things that we think of, like in, a, in an earthly human sense, where we consider to make people worthy or, you know, worthy of admiration or following, um, you know, people's ability, their beauty, their charisma, their experience, their intelligence, their pedigree. Those are all things that we just kind of in, a, in our own logical sense 
that's how we choose to, to say, oh, you get this certain status and I will respect you more because of these things. If you have degree titles, if you, know, if you have X amount of money, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but Jesus is very clearly displaying that it's humility throughout his ministry and at this point in this story in particular, he's demonstrating the significance of humility. Um, and I think the disciples needed to understand that. Obviously, when they're bickering over it, they clearly did not get the importance of it. Um, but maybe even more so, he's re-emphasizing here for them. Um, they needed to understand the importance of humility here because they were about to become 12 messengers for this king and his kingdom, which is built on humility. Um, and so this humility that Jesus taught, I think, goes a lot deeper than the ways that we just treat each other. Um, I, th I think this is a humility in our view of our own selves, um, not thinking too highly of ourselves because we know what Jesus has done for us. Um, and one way, I, I think it was someone that uh, kind of led one of the, co the college ministry that I was part of, um, of t kind of defining hu true humility is it's having an accurate view of self in light of an accurate view of God. I think that, to me, that's so much more important for figuring out, oh, like, am I truly humble? Am I truly humble in this area of my life, in this relationship? Um, and so I think it's out of this particular humble view of self um, that profound selflessness that Jesus, like the selflessness Jesus is modeling here, that it, it's the natural overflow. It's not something that you have to, like, plan on doing or, like, really, like, force yourself to do. But if we have this accurate view of ourselves in light of an accurate view of God, then out of that position, out of that self-understanding, come these acts of, of profound selflessness. So um, this next section that I want to talk about is this concept. So we've talked about humility. I think this next part of, the, of this text, this story, focuses on purity. Um, you know, we could easily stop at the humility thing, and that would be a pretty you know, a lesson that I'm sure a lot of people would appreciate, whatever. But again, I don't think this story is here simply to teach the virtue of, the human virtue of humility. Um, as a part of a whole, this passage is supposed to contribute to the main purpose of the whole book, which, as John stated, is that we may believe that Jesus is the Messiah. So, um, I'm going to read John 13, uh, verses 6 to 10. Excuse me. Um, okay, so verse 6 to 10. So this is after Jesus starts washing the disciples' feet. Um, he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. So, um, you know, it's this, this imagery of, of washing and cleaning, and it, it, it speaks to this existing, this pre-existing need for, for purity, for cleanliness. Um, and obviously, this is more than just a simple, like, personal hygiene lesson. This is, um, Jesus is addressing the, the need for purity caused by the problem of sin. Um, and sin is that ugly thing that we either begrudgingly acknowledge or we defiantly deny. 
Um, and, and sin, and, and what God says is that sin came into the world by rebellion of, of humankind under the deception of Satan. That's the, the, the very broad, simple way of summarizing that. This is the problem of sin. It's been there since the beginning because we have rebellious hearts. Um, and so I want to reread verse 8 because I think it's really easy to miss something here. Verse 8 of chapter 13, it says, um, Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And so Jesus is very clearly pointing, clearly um, communicating, it's he is the one who needs to provide this cleansing. If, and if not, then we have no share with him. Um, and, you know, I think, uh, if, you know, I really just want to cut, cut to the chase in a way. Jesus is saying that, and, and, and this is one time of many where he says, the only way to God, to eternal life with God in heaven, is through me, through Jesus. Sorry, I shouldn't point to me. <laughs> Jesus is saying that of himself, right? Um, and, and just the next chapter after this, John 14, 6, a, a very well-known uh, verse in, in the book of John, is Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So, I, I, assuming Jesus is telling the truth, assuming he's not a crazy man, this, this is a very clear statement. He's, he's making it very clear. The only way anyone can enter into fellowship with God eternally is through him. Um, um, and we know how uncomfortable the implications of that statement are because what it's saying is this is an exclusive faith. This is something that not everyone, just because they exist, will be able to enjoy this relationship. But as, as hard as that is to swallow in some way, this is not a condemnation. This is not saying, this is not Jesus saying, you need to stay away because you are unclean and you need to stay away because you're unclean. He's inviting people in. Um, he's inviting everyone to come let him clean up their mess. And really, it's the thing that stops people from letting Jesus clean up their mess is pride, which of course is the opposite of the humility that he's modeled, right? It's pride that stops us from admitting that we have some sort of imperfection, however big or small. It's pride that stops us um, from acknowledging that we can't completely fix all our own problems and ourselves on our own. And it's pride that stops us from actually asking someone else to help us. So the, really, the greatest act of humility that we can perform is laying down that pride and accepting this cleansing that Jesus is offering to us um, by repenting of our sin, by acknowledging him as Messiah. And I think it's always important. It's like, if you're going to do something this, like, mo like monumental, wh wh what's the motivation? And Jesus actually makes it pretty clear. He says, uh, you have no share with me if I don't wash you. So, of course, the implication is if he does wash us, if he is the one that cleanses us, we share his inheritance. And I think it's important to realize that this inheritance is not simply a ticket into heaven. That's a super wonderful and important aspect of this inheritance. So that's the eternal aspect of it. We get this, we get entry into God's kingdom, which is free of all this anguish and the guilt and the, the sorrow and the loss that we experience here on earth. That is our eternal inheritance that we get to share with Jesus because we are co-heirs. Romans 8, 17, um, we have it here. Um, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So the Apostle Paul is, is very clearly very clearly stating that those who are in Christ become fellow heirs with Jesus. And so 
that, that it, there's this eternal aspect to this inheritance, and then there is this earthly, like, like momentary, in, this, like in the here and the now, there's an aspect of that inheritance as well. Um, and I think that's, it's having this restored relationship with God, and out of that relationship comes a peace and a joy and an understanding and, and a passion that they, they don't solve all the problems in life. I'm not gonna make that claim. That's not true. It's not all, all our problems go away as soon as like, we come to faith in Jesus. But the problem is they, they have meaning and it actually becomes feasible to deal with them and not spiral downward into just absolute despair. Um, and so I think this, so this, this aspect of this story is important to realize that this, there's a purity that comes through Jesus alone. Um, and we have to, it requires a humility on our end to actually experience that. So the final part of this story, which is I think the easiest to miss actually, is the fact that we see multiple allusions to Jesus's true divine identity. Um, and so I'm gonna read verse one and verse 11, and hopefully you might start picking up on this. Uh, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So that's verse one, and then verse 11 says, for he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. And so in those two verses alone, we see allusions to Jesus' foreknowledge. He knows the future, and foreknowledge is a very distinct and important facet of omniscience, which is you know, the, the fancy way of saying all-knowing, knowing everything that is, was, will be. Um, that is what Jesus is displaying in this passage. Um, and that is a trait that in, in the Christian faith we ascribe as only being feasible by God himself. Um, and uh, has anyone seen uh, the, the most recent Indiana Jones movie, this, The Kingdom of the Crystal Skull? It's, it was a pretty absurd movie. I mean, it's entertaining, but it's pretty absurd. And the, the, the villain is basically trying to get this, this alien skull um, because it like unlocks some treasure or whatever. And at the end, she's able to like put it in place and all these aliens come around her and she, they like, I guess, asked uh, what she wants from them. And she asked to be given all knowledge in the universe. And she, they give it to her, and her head explodes. Like, she's not, like, I mean, not, like, in the gory, bloody sense, but there's, like, this weird, like, CGI cosmic effect going on, and she just vaporizes. Because it's too much for, like, I think the, 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 the lesson in that movie is there's no person who can or should be given that. They're not able to handle all that. Our brains are so finite. Um... And then another important facet that Jesus displays is beside this omniscience, this foreknowledge, is his omnipotence. Um, and that's, we see that in verse three. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands. So again, easy to miss that, but the implications of that statement, God the Father has given Jesus all possession and ownership over everything in the universe. He has a right to control and, and manipulate whatever he wants. And so, you know, I think there's a lot of danger, even like, even with a small amount of power, like the power that I have here could be used very, very destructively, just speaking to you. Um, but even more so, having literal control over space and time and matter, uh, that's what Jesus has because God gave, God the Father gave it to him. And no human alone could be trusted with that. Not, well, again, they're not capable of dealing with that, but not only are they not capable of 
harnessing that power. They're not trustworthy enough because everyone has their flaws. Everyone at some point or another is going to you know, misuse their power and, and it, it sows injustice and abuse. Um, and so it's Jesus who is the only person, only someone who's perfectly good and perfectly just could be trusted with that. And, and, and what, what the Bible says, what the Bible depicts is Jesus was the only person who was ever, who was ever perfect in that way. Um, so, there's, so we've covered the omniscience of Jesus, the omnipotence of Jesus, and then finally, the unity of Jesus with God the Father. Um, so I actually want to read um, John 12, uh, 44 to 45, the chapter before this. Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. Um, and, and so then the actual last verse of our passage in verse 13, chapter, uh, sorry, chapter 13, verse 20, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. And so what these two verses or these two passages tell us is there's this bond between Jesus the Son and God the Father that is so mysteriously bound together. We, couldn't, we could not fully dis- explain it and understand it, but needless to say, they come hand in hand. They cannot be seen apart from one another. So there's this, this mysterious union and unity where they share, they're not two separate beings. They are one being of the same essence. They're different persons of the same being. I don't want to get into Trinitarianism right now. It's a whole complicated thing. But the simple, the simple way of putting it is they are the same being. They share the same essence and the same character. Their persons are, are just a matter of what they do, what, like how they kind of relate with one another and relate with the world. So bottom line, this, 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 this idea of the, the deity of God, of the deity of Jesus, is, is he has this omniscience, this omnipotence, and this oneness with God the Father which reveal that he was not just a ethical teacher. He wasn't just a good man. He wasn't even just a miracle worker. He was all those things. Those are all true, but those are all subsumed under his true identity as the Son of God, the Messiah, God in the flesh. So at the beginning, you know, I pointed, I, I, I pointed out that the purpose of the entire book of John, and therefore this story as part of that book, is to help us come to the belief that Jesus is the Messiah. Um, John 13, 19, Jesus says, I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. So Jesus is calling the shot here as well as, as, as the way John points it out in, in chapter 20. He's saying, I'm telling you all these things like, I'm, I'm displaying my divinity, I'm displaying my humility, I'm displaying my oneness with God so that you might believe that Jesus, that I, Jesus, am the Messiah. I am the one who was promised to take away the sin of the world. And so, you know, it's, 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 it would be easier to walk away from this story, it's just reading it at a glance, with the moral of humility in this general sense, in a behavioral sense. But this story is more about the humility to acknowledge that Jesus is the Messiah. Um, and those who receive Jesus' disciples receive him and the Father in heaven. 
Um, these three are inextricably interwoven. God's people, Jesus, and, and God, God the Father, they are interwoven. Um, and so, um, receiving, this is an invitation. This is an invitation for anyone who reads this, for anyone who hears this story, hears these words of Jesus, to enter into this fellowship. And, and practically speaking, what does that look like? It's re- if you receive the disciples, the one who Jesus has sent, and they are the messengers. They, they wrote these books. They wrote these words down from their own very experience and reality that others might, might come into this fellowship and join this fellowship. Um, so, it, you know, s- tr- just trying to summarize all this, Jesus came to earth to do so much more than preach ethical platitudes or model servant leadership. He did those things. I'm not denying he did those things. Those are, those are manifestations, though, of why he was there, of who he was. Um, it's, 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 you know, the difference between Christianity and every other religion or lack thereof is wh- who do they say Jesus is? And everyone says he was a prophet, he was a teacher, he was a wise man, good man, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but, you know, to, ado- to only adopt some of his teachings, his ethical teachings, like behavioral stuff, while ignoring all these things that point to his true divine identity, his deity, um, and that ignore his sacrifice on the cross, um, that's missing the forest for the trees. He didn't come here just to teach us good things. There's plenty of other people that can do that, that have done it. Um, but see, the, the humility that we've been talking about and that we see him display here is, is so much deeper than just how do you treat your neighbor. Jesus displayed a humility in first by taking on this human form, which is so weak and so frail at the end of the day. We're like ants. I mean, probably smaller than ants to God, right? Um, and, but, and yet he took on that form, and he started as a baby, no less. He didn't come as like a full-grown man. He started as a baby. That act of humility with all that power and all that uh, right to rule over everything, he willingly took on that form. So we see this profound act of humility. And then his greatest act of humility was to willingly take on that the judgment for sin and the punishment that because of that. that. That is even more profound than any of these things that he displayed you know, uh, with the washing the feet. Um, and so he, yes, it's true that like following Jesus, believing in him, there's a, there's a cost to that. It's not like a, like a I, don't, I don't know. Yeah, it's, not, it's, not, it's not something like, yes, I ascent, cognitively believe it, therefore we're all good. There's a cost to this life with Jesus. But he asked us to be willing to give up everything only because he did that. He doesn't, he didn't, like, he didn't ask us to do that before he made the ultimate sacrifice where he humbled himself and put himself on that cross. Um, so I, I want all of us to leave here asking ourselves, do I view myself rightly um, in light of a right view of Jesus, the Messiah and the Son of God, God in the flesh? Do I right, view myself rightly in light of a right view of Jesus? Um, and if, if no, what, what, what is stopping you? And, and that's, not, that's not a combative question by any means. I just want, you to, I just want to encourage you to take the time to think through that. If, if these things are true, what, is, what holds me back from, from truly believing and, and underst- understanding myself rightly as, as 
having purity through Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah. And if I, if, you, if I do believe that already, if I do believe that Jesus has cleansed me, that, um, that I am restored to fellowship with God the Father because of Jesus, um, when and where in my life am I prone to forget that and, and, and have a distorted view of myself and or God? Because in reality, it's like, yes, we, we understand it at an intellectual level, but there's so many parts of our lives where we're tempted to think otherwise, think otherwise about ourselves, to think otherwise about who God is um, in, our, in, in our thoughts, in our words, in our actions. Um, it, it does take a lot of self-awareness, but thankfully we have, for those who are in Christ, we have God himself, the Holy Spirit, dwelling in us to help us see where, where, are, we, where are we forgetting? Where are we showing pride instead of this humility that Jesus modeled? Um, so humility is necessary to truly believe that Jesus is our Messiah and to live the, a God-honoring life that will have an eternal impact in his everlasting kingdom. So um, thank you for listening, and I'm just going to pray us out. Um, Father God, I'm, I'm indescribably humbled uh, that you sent your son um, onto this earth, which is so full of its aches and pains um, that he willfully took on our form, um, our struggles, and ultimately our, our punishment um, for the sake of, of cleansing us, for restoring us to you. There's nothing we do that could ever deserve that, nothing we do that could ever um, merit that that act of generosity and humility, God, and I pray that every person here would be just so um, deeply reminded and and just convicted of that the implications of that that we that we can know you because you desire to know us to to restore us back to the way you once designed us, God. Um, so I just thank you that you give us your word and that you teach us these things. I pray that you would uh, help reveal to us where in our lives that we don't rightly view ourselves in light of you, God. Pray that you would help us in, in your generosity, God, in your compassion, in your empathy, in your mercy. I pray that you would help us remember how, um, how to see ourselves and how to see you. And we know that in that positional understanding, that understanding of ourselves, God, out of that will flow uh, a love, a love for you and a love for others that will um, ultimately change the world, God. Um, so I just thank you that uh, you've just given us this time. I pray that you would continue to be with us as we continue worshiping, uh, that we would respond rightly, uh, that we would uh, strive to continue uh, walking in your ways, God, um, humbly um, and with, with great anticipation of the things you have yet to do. Uh, so I just uh, pray these things in the name of your Son and by your Spirit. Amen.